This episode is sponsored by MJ's Progress Not Perfection Meeting Center Association. We are in our meeting center where we do all these meetings for mental health and addiction. I can do this podcast anywhere. I can do this at home. I can do this in a closet. I can do this in a basement. It doesn't matter. All I need is somebody else to talk to about addiction and recovery. What I can't do from anywhere is help people with their addiction and their mental health problems. So if you can help out, you know, we do have a Venmo, we have a Cash App, we have a PayPal, we have an address you can send a check to. And, you know, all the money that gets donated goes towards rent, goes towards keeping the lights on, and goes towards keeping the internet on. So please, you know, if you can get five bucks, 10 bucks, 20 bucks, it doesn't matter. Anything you can is so appreciated. And if you are a local business, if you're a national business, whatever, and you want to be a part of what we're doing, you know, you can reach out to me and we can talk about how you can be a sponsor. But I'll let you get back to the episode. Welcome to the show, Molly. I appreciate you coming on. Thanks. Um, now, you and I, you reached out, you know, you know, Nicole that I interviewed a couple months ago. Yeah. And so, you know, but you didn't you didn't really know her, know her like you knew of her, like you guys knew each other in passing, was it? Oh, no. I mean, we used very heavily together, but I didn't I don't know who she really is because I don't really consider who she was when she was using, you know. But yeah, uh, no, we spent many days together. Oh, I see. So you you knew the Nicole from addiction. Yeah. And not the Nicole necessarily that like I interviewed because you, and, and that's how it is, too. When you get sober, especially two people that were getting high together. Usually one person goes this way with sobriety, one person goes this way, and it is what it is. Um, the most important part is you stay sober, you know. Right. So what is your clean date then? Um, July 23rd, 2018. Okay, cool. So you got a little over three years then. Mm-hmm. Um, and what was what was going on with you July 2018 for you to, you know, be like, I need to get sober. I need to stop doing what I'm doing. Well, I had gotten arrested and um, I had I accumulated about 20 different soliciting charges and my probation officer kind of threw in the towel on me and said either I'm serving six months or I'm going to treatment. And I, so I didn't really willingly go into this, but um, as I was in jail, I started kind of feeling a little bit more like maybe I do have a chance at a better life. And um, a lot of things moved for me to go to a treatment program in Springfield, far away from Columbus. And um, and I went there. And that's kind of where I started to mentally want it. Yeah. Captain to do it. Yeah, because, you know, how many soliciting charges did you have for the probation officer to be like, Molly, come on? Yeah, like at least 20. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah I yeah, was on that's... my last leg. <laughs> yeah, I mean, obviously, definitely. Now, when did you like start getting arrested? What? How old were you? Well, I have um, two different times in my life that I used and and did the um, sex work and the trafficking. Um, so, in two thousand two was the last time, and I was out for like five years. And I had a few years sober and relapsed um, with the guy drinking. And went back out for another three years. Okay, so then let's really rewind then. So you started, did you start out with alcohol, like a lot of us, or did you go right into drugs? I definitely started with weed and alcohol. Um, 
really young. I was probably 12, 11, 12, and I was getting, you know, drinking Magnums and King Cobra 40s. And um, and I lived in a very, like, hippie town. I grew up in Yellow Springs, Ohio, which is a very, like, um, yeah, I've heard of I've heard of Yellow Springs. That's where Dave Chappelle lives. Yeah, yeah, he was a That's, few years ahead of me, but I, I knew yeah, him. yeah, he's very, he's very, very famous for that now. <laughs> yeah, it was very socially acceptable to smoke weed there. Like my mom did, everybody that I knew did. So we started smoking weed at a really young age, which kind of led me to older crowds that I started doing a lot of. This is a different time, but I started doing a lot of um, party drugs in my early teens, ketamine, acid, ecstasy, ecstasy. nitrous. How, how old are you, if you don't mind me asking? I'll be 41 next month. Okay, you don't look 41. Yeah, but that makes sense, though, because, you know, I'm 35, and ecstasy was huge in the 2000s, like early to mid, late 90s. I always think of Bad Boys 2, you know, how they're trying to take down the ecstasy ring because that was the big drug in the early 2000s when that movie came out, you know? It wasn't coke flood in the borders in Miami. It was ecstasy. It's mm-hmm. crazy. Um, so now it's the early 2000s, and you're getting into, like, the party drugs and stuff like that. Yeah. Or late, and then, late 90s, late 90s, right. early 2000s. Right. And then um, me and my longtime boyfriend, who is the my oldest son's father split up and I, I was only, um, 21 at the time, I think. And we split up and I lost custody of my youngest son, um, or my oldest son now, (laughs) sorry, my oldest son. And I met some, I was just kind of floating around homeless. I was, um, distraught over losing custody of my child. And I met, a guy when I was homeless that was like, oh, you can come home with me. <laughs> and so I went home with him and he was a lot older than me. And um, he was just strange acting. He would leave a lot for like days at a time and he wouldn't let me leave. And I didn't really have anywhere else to go. So I was kind of, I felt stuck there. And um, one day he kind of swindled me. <laughs> well, he he put it under the guise of, if you have sex with this guy and me in the same room, like, I think that'll turn me on. And I really was so naive. I was like, eh, I don't want to do this, but I want to make him happy. So I, I did. But as soon as we all three got together, like, he left the room. And then when everything was all said and done, the guy that he had left me with was, like, here and handed me some, um, well, I know now it was crack. He handed me some drugs, and he was like, I already paid him, but I want to make sure you get some of it, too. And I was like, I don't know. Like, it all came clear to me right then that he had sold me to him. Um, And I was so mad. I came upstairs, and <laughs> I just wanted to, like, I don't know. And so I tried it, and it was really – I tried the drugs, and I can say it was probably at first – The first time I tried it, I was like, I I need more of this. So he would hold it over my head, and he would keep bringing more guys. And here, I'll give you this little bit if you do this. And um, that went on for about a year before he got got arrested for a previous charge he had finally. And then I was just kind of strung out and on my own. So, yeah, when you met him, you were, 
like an alcoholic though. You were like homeless because of your drinking. You yeah. lost your kid because of your drink. You weren't even into really drugs yet. If like the party drugs, yeah, like yeah. it's and that's for those who are listening or watching that don't know, there's a huge difference from the party drugs of the, you know, Coke, Adderall, ecstasy, acid, shrooms compared to crack. Crack isn't a party drug. Crack isn't something you break out the kitchen counter during, you know, a fucking party when there's no. keg stands going on. Not you know at what all. I mean? So, you know, that's that's a totally that's a huge step in the wrong direction technically, but I mean it's that's some, that's your story. That's what happens. So, you end up getting strung out on it. This dude that was basically trafficking you it sounds like just, you know, would find guys to come over and then he would get paid for pimping you out, basically. That's what, you know, sex trafficking doesn't look like what some of the movies makes it look like from what I've been talking to, like, you girls about. It's more like, you know, it, can you explain, it's almost like the, um, that theory, the nurse, uh, where that you're, you're attracted to the nurse that's taking care of you. What's that called? The Florence Nightingale syndrome, where, like, yeah. you're, it's almost like you're afraid to leave because you're afraid of the bad world out there, and at least you're safe in here somewhat. You know, you know, the biggest thing that we fear is the unknown. At least if you know what's happening in that house, even if it's not safe or not right, and even in your mind, I'm sure you know in your mind, like, I should not be doing this. But right. at the same time, you're like, I need to do this in order to survive, though. Right. And then when you, because, um, no, it's not really this thing where people that are trapped, these men that are trafficking women are, you know, just trafficking them. There's almost, if not always, almost always a drug involved. And it's a strongly addictive drug like crack and heroin short acting drug crack is so short acting he can give me two dollars worth of crack and have me running for that two dollars worth of crack all day long essentially um throw me just another so you can worth. yeah yeah and it's like a coer there's there's different ways coercion is definitely one of them debt bondage oh i'll give you some of these drugs but you owe me for these drugs you know i'll get you high first but you owe me now i gotta work you uh, That's what I think Nicole said it happened to her, where they would front out the drugs in the morning to get them through, and then but they had to pay it back when they came back for the day, or don't come back until you have the money to pay it back, or right. whatever. Don't come back, or we'll send one of our other addicts. We'll give them five dollars worth of dope to go chase you down on the streets and beat your ass, and that. Modern day pimping is how it really is. Yeah, it's not the fucking jacket and the cane and the hat and yeah. the whole whole nine yards. No, it's yeah. it's the old couple in their sixties yeah. and their fifties that have the little white picket fence that could be your neighbor. And if all of a sudden you're seeing a bunch of random girls in their twenties living with this couple, call mm-hmm. somebody about that because there's usually some shady shit going on. If all of a sudden this couple didn't have any grandkids all their lives and they've been living next to you and all of a sudden there's girls in their 20s living there with them, that's a red flag. That's a red flag. It's going to be pretty obvious, though, as well, because they don't feed you. It's not like you get fed well or showers. 
um, oftentimes if I wanted a shower or food, I had to somehow come up with money on top of my drug money on top of what I owed them money to take a shower. So I had to pay $10, $20 just to take a shower. I had to pay, you know, just to eat a meal or even to just use the bathroom. So, yeah. It's almost like you're better off in a homeless shelter except for, you know, you can't get high. You can't get high. Right. So, and that's why they hold that over you. That's, you know, and it's, so you, you get caught up in that. Now you get out of that because the guy gets thrown in jail, but now you're kind of thrown to the wolves theoretically because it's what, 2002 mm-hmm. and you're homeless. Is this when you get clean the first time? Yeah. Well, I spent, after I left him, it was a good two or it was a good three years that I um was just being trafficked by various different people on the streets because I literally walked out of his house that day when he got arrested onto the streets with nothing but the outfit on my back and an addiction um so I very quickly found um it was a transgender but that I thought it was a woman but it was a man transgender however that works I don't know sorry if my pronouns are wrong male Um, to female transgender is the correct there you go um, stopped me on the streets and kind of started off with saying, you know, well, I'll help you out. We'll take you to my house and get you something to eat. And, and then, um, next thing I know is being trafficked by that person and being passed on to her brother next. And I mean, I, I just, at that time I was fed, I was driven by my addiction and that was all I had in my mind was if I can even get one hit, it's worth whatever I have to do along the way, whoever beats me up whoever I have to have sex with, whoever to get there. No, yeah, and I totally get that. I I totally understand that. Um and that and that's just, and that's kind of I talked about it with somebody, I forget who. Um we talked about how it's kind of why women kind of stay in addiction longer than men sometimes. It's easier because, for them. And it's not even easier because morally it's hard, but it's right. easier like to be like if, if I was to wake up withdrawn I would have to really strain myself of how can I make a hundred dollars right to get high today. And then for you, it's not the how it's the, how am I going to get through doing this while withdrawing? You know, I never liked having sex or doing anything while withdrawing, you know, it is not, it is not fun, but the whole point is, it wasn't going to be fun for you regardless. You know what I mean? It's not like you were meeting these dudes and going, oh, my God, I'm so in love. This was amazing. <laughs> no, you were like, all right, half an hour, bro. Get the fuck out of here. You're right. You, you know? <laughs> Time yes. to so, I mean, definitely. Uh, I, I, but yeah. Yeah, and that's why the drugs came in handy, because then you can kind of numb what you did at the same time of actually fixing the fix of the physical or mental withdrawal you're going through at the time, especially and, you like know, you're in, you're in fucking Ohio too. Like Columbus is not like an easy place to be homeless. Like I've been to Columbus. I know. And I know the hood of Columbus. I've gotten, you know what I mean? Like I've gotten off the highway before coming from Ann Arbor and I was in the hood of Columbus going through a Burger King. And they were like, you got to get out of here because you're wearing Michigan colors in Columbus, and you're, <laughs> dumb as, you're dumb as hell. Like, my brother and I literally came from Ann Arbor. We were driving back to North Carolina where we were living at the time. 
and I was hungry, and I was like, I'm getting off the highway here. He goes, you can't. It's Columbus. Because <laughs> he's the bigger fan than I am. Like, I like – I'm more of an Notre Dame fan. And he was like, you can't get out here, J.D. It's Columbus. I said, it's fine. And he goes, no, we're wearing Michigan stuff. My car is Michigan stuff all over it. We cannot go to Columbus, J.D. <laughs> and I said, I'm getting off and having it fucking my way and going to this Burger King that the highway is telling me is off this exit. So and it was the hood, <laughs> and we pulled to the window. She's like, "I shouldn't even be giving you this food. If blah 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 was here, he would be pissed. Here, get the hell out of here." <laughs> so, I bet. I bet. yeah, that, that that Ohio State Michigan rivalry does not play around. Play around. So right. yeah, but it's cold there. That's my point, and it's not easy to be homeless. You're driven to do some shit you don't want to do because you kind of feel like you have to to get a roof over your head or a blanket. Like, I know oh, plenty of yeah, people that are time. homeless in L.A. that are able to live homeless in L.A. because it's right. nice there all year round. I would go out and work just because I didn't even when I had drugs, because the only way for me to get someplace to go in warm was to either buy more drugs or pay to lay somewhere for a while, which, you know, it never ended up working out. The money always runs out. You're always kicked right back out. But, you know, there was times where I didn't even need to get high. I either had drugs or I was done getting high. But I still had to go out and hustle money up because it was so cold. There was times I was walking down the street in nothing, like literally T-shirt and jeans and flip-flops and snow, you know? Um, yeah, and the snow is crazy around there. Like, man. that's, yeah, like, that's what I mean. Like, you get all the weather, you know? And, and I'm in Pennsylvania, so I get it. We get all the weather. When I yeah. when I lived in North Carolina, it was not the case. And when I lived in L.A., it was not the case, but... Where we live, we get all the four seasons plus some. I feel like we get like the extremes of all four seasons, you know. Yeah. Um. So I mean, I'm not. We're not far from snow. I know my buddy lives in Minnesota, and it's already snowing there. So I know it's coming. All right. So now it's been a few years, and you're in and out, or uh, you're out the whole entire time. Now, what what causes you to like be like, all right, I need to try to like, when you got sober in 2002, what was it? A felony conviction. Um, I had gotten, I think I was on my seventh felony for possession at the time. The laws were a little different too. So I was getting charged possessions for having paraphernalia, um, even if I didn't have drugs on me, because they would charge me with 0.00001 grams of cocaine, and that was a felony five. So I had gotten up to my seventh of the same thing, like literally the seventh felony for the same thing. And they sent me away to a um, correctional program called Monday. And while I was in there, I chose to go to Alba's house in Columbus. And that's how I ended up in Columbus. Because I was in Dayton, Ohio, when this was happening. Okay. All right. So then you ended up in Columbus. Now, and you got sober that time. It worked. Yeah, it worked. I was sober for almost eight years. Did you do any kind of program in that eight years? Were you completely sober, sober, or were you just I absent? I was completely sober, sober, but it was because of just white knuckling it. I didn't have any program. I started the first year or so. I was intermittently in and out of meetings, but um, after that, it was just me white knuckling it, and um, I don't know why I thought I could do it on my own will, but it seemed to be a good idea at the time. It sounds like... <laughs> It sounds like, without even asking, you work a program this time just because you use the phrase white knuckling, 
And I never would have used that phrase if it wasn't for learning it in the rooms, really, to learn what I was trying to do. So, like, that tells me that you do work a program now. The the fact that you say something, like, in that way, if that makes sense, you know. Right. Oh, yeah. It's really funny. So, So, (laughs) yep. Which is actually, you know, that's, and this guy's been on my show, and he's going to be on it again, um, Jeff Vickers. Um, He wrote a book called Sober Slogans. Yeah. Yeah. uh, I'm sure you've seen it it pop up. That dude is all about marketing. He is crazy. (laughs) Uh, uh, I like him. He'll be on the show again soon. Okay. So now eight years, that's rough white knuckles. That's, Mm -hmm. you know, and again, for those who don't know, white knuckle and that's for people like Molly in this case, that's like, hey, I'm not going to drink. I'm not going to smoke. I'm not going to do drugs. But I'm also not going to find out why I did all of those things, and I'm not going to work on myself. I'm just going to try to pretend it never happened, and let's go. It's time to live life, and those addiction years never happened, and I'm a good girl, and I don't do drugs or drink or do smoke weed. You don't need to know why. I don't need to know why. I just don't do it anymore. Yeah. <laughs> and that's, that's a what... really accurate representation <laughs> of what it was like. Yes. <laughs> um, and unfortunately, what happens is what happens. Eight years sounds like a long fucking time, you know? Like, shit, three and a half years. I haven't touched an opiate. That feels like forever. Eight years is double the time. So, you know, eight years later, 2010, 2011... What happens to Miss Molly where she's like, I need to fucking get drunk. <laughs> well, I had, um, it was a man. I, I had met this man and I knew he was bad news because he drank a lot. Like I met him, my roommate had um, known him for years and I woke up one day and he was passed out in like a comatose state drunk on my couch. And for some reason, I felt like instantly in love. And um, I mean, at first, I tried to work through it. I really did. Like, it was a while before I finally gave up and had a drink with him. But I mean, maybe six months into it, he had moved in the first week we met. All of a sudden, we're, you know, like this, you know. <laughs> um, and he was getting drunk every night. And I just got to this point where I was like, man, I. I feel like I'm missing out. He would go to the bar and I wouldn't go because I wasn't drinking. And um, I was like, I can just have a drink. Um, So I went to the bar with him one time and had a drink and it worked that first time, but very slow. I mean, very quickly within a week's time, I would say I was pounding back beer after beer with him from morning to night. It just came back that quick to me. And very shortly thereafter, well, I would say within a couple of years, I had progressed to, oh, I'll try a hit a crack. And um, by that time, he had become so controlling. And, um, you know, the typical abuser. So he had made it so hard for me to go see my family that I just stopped going to see them. Um, if I ever left the house without him, he would call me or whoever I was with back to back to back to back and accuse me of cheating until I would just come home. Um, he made me lose a lot of jobs. He would call my jobs in the middle of my shift, freaking out and cussing my boss out, saying that I was out cheating on him. And so at this point, I and, and I was pregnant. <laughs> so I got pregnant by him. So at this point, I lost any self-sustainability anyways so I was 
just under his control. Um, and he started using with me and we started getting heavier and heavier into drugs. And um, the third time that the cops came out to our house, my son was, we had a son together. So my son was about four years old at this time. And he was on um, the third time the cops had come out for domestic violence charges to our house. And we had already had the gas shut off, the water shut off. Um, we didn't have electricity. We were using a cord from someone else's house. I had no business having a child here anyways. Um, so God did for what me what I couldn't do for myself. And the third time that the cops got called on us, they took him to jail for an extended period of time. And I was left there with no money. Um, a four-year-old child looking at me hungry and, and bundled up in his little jacket because it was so cold in the house. And I, I knew that I couldn't do this to him anyways anymore. I called um, my mother-in-law or his grandma or whatever to come get him. And his grandmother came and got him. And I thought I had nothing else to live for. So I walked out that door and it happened to be, um, I mean, we lived in the thick of the sex work neighborhood of Hudson. So I walked out that door right on the Hudson and Columbus and fell right back into a trafficker's arms. So, okay. That's rough. So it's 2015 now, right? Mm-hmm. Is that what it is? Yeah, about. And your husband goes away. Was it your husband? No, we were together well, for but, six yeah. years. episode is sponsored by MJ's Progress Not Perfection Meeting Center Association. We are in our meeting center where we do all these meetings for mental health and addiction. I can do this podcast anywhere. I can do this at home. I can do this in a closet. I can do this in a basement. It doesn't matter. All I need is somebody else to talk to about addiction and recovery. What I can't do from anywhere is help people with their addiction and their mental health problems. So if you can help out, you know, we do have a Venmo. We have a Cash App. We have a PayPal. We have an address you can send a check to. And, you know, all the money that gets donated goes towards rent, goes towards keeping the lights on, and goes towards keeping the internet on. So please, you know, if you can get five bucks, 10 bucks, 20 bucks, it doesn't matter. Anything you can is so appreciated. If you are a local business, if you're a national business, whatever, and you want to be a part of what we're doing, you know, you can reach out to me and we can talk about how you can be a sponsor. But I'll let you get back to the episode. Yeah, he he might as well be. Okay. Right. The dude you're with, living with, partner, had a son with, goes to jail. And I'm just trying to catch up. And the easiest, you know, obviously, yeah, get your kid protection, get him a roof. That was the smartest thing to do. Um, but you're in the thick of doing crack again, right, at this point. Yeah, so, and I moved on to opiates, too, at this point. So Now you're, now you're shooting dope, too. Okay. And so was did you move into opiates because that was your ex's drug of choice before you got – that was my guess. So – because it would be really random for him to be a heavy drinker and then to just go into crack. Yeah. Just be just because his girlfriend was doing it when he's right. the narcissist that's controlling. Usually the narcissist that's controlling, that's the addict, gets their significant other into the drug that they want to do. So yeah. that would make sense. That's why 
it progressed. Oh, yeah. He actually was very heavy into perks and um, pain Roxy's, pills for yeah. yeah stuff like that. When we were more together, like when we were holding jobs and everything, and we had the money to do that sort of thing. Was he and doing he, the drives to Florida? No, he wasn't doing that. But um, he was just he was working on construction crews, and a lot of them just there was a lot of access to pills on those crews. I don't know exactly why that is. Well, but, I think well a lot of them had scripts. Right. Mm -hmm. A lot of them was easy. It's easy to get scripts when you work in that kind of field because you can claim pain. Yeah. While you're working. Um, like I there's actually I had a girl on from Columbus that her and her husband, you know, they they were in addiction together and sobriety together. Now they were doing the trip to Florida four times. a, a was it seven times a month or six times a month. They were driving from Columbus to Florida 22 hours each way. But they were getting 1,800 pills a month, 1,830s, 1,815s, 1,500 bars, you know, I know. just a ridiculous Crazy. amount. So now you're out in the street. You said you fell into a trafficker's arms. Were you looking for a trafficker? Well, no. Okay, so as soon as I walked out of that house, um, uh, I was walking down Hudson and a car stopped right beside me and um i kind of knew like i mean i wasn't stupid i knew what they wanted it was a guy and you know he told me to get in and so i at that point i just want i don't know there was i was not in my state of mind also you know but so i jumped in and i did something with that guy for money and then the first drug dealer I found was um, ready, ready for a woman to come along that was fresh on the streets, and um, he took full advantage of the situation. I see now. Okay, so the dude you bought drugs off of also, like you said, a lot of the traffickers also dabble in selling drugs or vice versa. So the dude that you're buying drugs off was like, hey, I can help you make some money if you want to buy some more drugs exactly. off Exactly. And hey, I've got this spare bedroom upstairs. It was a bit, it's a, it was a trap house. So it wasn't like anything. He was legally there. There was no electricity or anything, but um, he had a couple other women that was in these bare bedrooms, you know, getting high and going out and coming back in. But in that moment and in that lifestyle, that seems appealing and you want that. So yeah, you'll agree to and especially he's going to hand you extra drugs, you know, and you just pay him back later. It sounds so great and enticing at first until he's chasing you down the street with him and 10 of his friends and ripping your clothes off and beating you because <laughs> you went somewhere else <laughs> or because you didn't come back when he thought you should have came back. Or... That happened to you? More than it... once, more than once. The same guy, this guy, he ended up finally getting arrested, which is probably the only reason I survived. But, um, Actually, Nicole was, it was probably Nicole's same trafficker, I'm pretty sure. Um, his name is. Uh, you don't Jack. have to. Okay. Anyway, so he would, he was ruthless and he actually used as well. But he would literally like drive around town with him and like four or five of his um, goons, like the dudes that used, that would do anything to make him happy because he had a pocket full of drugs. 
And if they saw me, which of course I was visible, I was trying to find dates and trying to get high and all that. So I was always, you know, visible enough. And if they seen me, they would just pull over and jump out the car and either beat me until I got in the car or drag me into the car and then take me back and beat me. And um, the neighborhood was such as, even if people saw it happening, they aren't going to say anything, you know? Because that's the neighborhood. And mm-hmm. you don't you don't call the cops on the neighborhood people. Right. Like, Part, yeah. And also, you know, I wasn't, to the people in the neighborhood, especially as visible as I was, I wasn't a human anymore. Um, I was a, I was a monster. I was, you know, a junkie, a fiend. You know, I was all that. So I I became non-human to them. Yeah, and that's kind of on par with what Nicole was talking about. How she felt. I mean, and she had, and you probably do too. Like that before picture that she had. You know, she's like seventy-five, eighty pounds abscesses you know her hair matted to her head and you know when I asked her about it she was like I thought I looked cute there and sent that to my mom right that she was like that was a good picture that I had sent out originally that I thought was good in the moment and I'm like oh you know so like looking in the mirror if the picture's Sometimes don't do justice, which they don't a lot of the times. Pictures don't do justice. I can't imagine what, you know, what you're seeing in the mirror. I know what I, it's funny because I, it's not funny. It's ironic. I'm the opposite of what most drug addicts, I gained weight in addiction. Mm. You know, I was the person that just retained water the entire time and gained weight with opiates. But I also think it has to do with what you're doing in addiction, depending on what your body goes through with the. So, like, for me, my addiction looked like a lot of driving. I drove a lot in my addiction. You know, I wasn't doing 22 hour drives, but I was doing two hour drives four times a week each way. That's a lot of driving. That's also a lot of sitting. Mm -hmm. So, like. And you're literally, like you said, you're walking the streets. And yeah, when you for, say walking not the for street. nothing. Yeah, literally walking the streets. Literally, yeah, like literally I mean, walking. Yeah, for and weeks straight. Weeks and not, straight. And not and not for nothing. Um, having sex burns a shitload of calories. Facts. You know what I mean? Like, it's just the truth. It's like thousands of calories sometimes you can burn. So if all you're doing all day long is getting high and walking the streets and having sex, yeah, you're going to look emaciated real fast. You know, well, you're... I, I existed off little Debbie cakes and, and, and uh, gas station pizza. Whenever that's what I, I mean. Yeah, I... That, and that's, I, mean, and, I would go two weeks without eating with no problem. Like, but that's my, that's my point, is for the last three years of my addiction, I was basically living off Reese cups and Coke from the mm-hmm. gas station. I, I only, I, I had, I ran a plumbing company with my dad and my brother. And so, like, I wasn't, you know, like, the head person. So, like, I got a paycheck every week, but I made really good money. Um, in commission the one year I made 97 grand, but guess what? I didn't have a dime to my name at the end of the year, you know, and I, that entire year, 
I did not spend any of my money on anything but drugs because every time I needed cigarettes, I used my gas card from my work get my work gas card. Every time I need cigarettes, work gas card. If I wanted Reese's or a Coke or some some kind of snack, gas card. Gas to drive back and forth to Jersey, gas card. Right. Go going back and forth to Jersey four times a week. I had my Easy Pass. You know, so all the money I was making was going straight to drugs, couple grand a week, straight to drugs. Plus, I was being fronted, and plus, I was it, there was so many different things, you know, that I was doing to go through them. But I was sitting, so we had the same diet, yeah. Except for my diet did not include walking eight miles a day, and let's be honest, I wasn't really having sex. I was depressed as shit. And nobody, I didn't want to try. I wasn't attracting any suitors, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I was in a relationship for three years in my addiction, and I was, we were best friends growing up. And she was bipolar, schizophrenic, and alcoholic. So it's not like we were fucking all the time. It's not right. like you know. So yeah, like I, I gained weight. I was like a, you know, I always say like, uh, what's some Chris Farley gained weight when he was on heroin and coke. Yeah. And like I'm, I'm like that, <laughs> except for not nearly as funny. Um, so, <laughs> so it it makes a lot of sense to me if you really think about the activities one is doing in addiction, and just like I said, I'm not even trying to be morbid or anything, but having sex burns a lot of calories. So if that's your life for years, yeah, I mean, what what did you get down to before when you got sober again? At my lowest weight, I was 79 pounds, um, and I'm five foot tall. Um, my healthy weight is 135, 140. Yeah. So, I mean, I was to the point where, like, I mean, it was, you could see my backbone. Every bone in my body was poking out. I mean, I really literally looked like a, a Holocaust survivor, um, very much so. And my no. liver was failing, so I was yellow. My skin was yellow. I had sores everywhere, just like every addict out there gets. Did um now did you go through the same program that Nicole went through? The what's the program? Angels? Do you know about it? That they go into the courts? Um no, I don't know what her specific program was, but I I um. My family actually showed up and kind of fought for me to go to a faith-based recovery program. They were trying to get me into the catch court in Columbus, which is where a lot of the women in Columbus go through, but I would have been stuck in Columbus. And um, also my family knew before I knew it that um, I really needed to find some spirituality uh, along with my recovery to really recover. So because you had said earlier on you had been arrested 20 times for soliciting and everything, and now you get thrown in jail. Your probation officer's like, Molly, we're done. We're not doing this shit anymore. Um, Is this when your family steps in because you're about to go to jail and they get a phone call? Or what is it that all of a sudden they're like, hey, we'll be in your life again, Molly? Um, Well, they didn't really have much choice. When I used... I go so ghost, you can't find me. And they're not from Columbus. They were actually from where this program that I went to is at in Springfield, Ohio. Um, So they had tried to find me and had succeeded one other time um, on Hudson. 
but I was, I didn't have a, I didn't have any steady phone number. I didn't have an address. So there was years they didn't see me. So the only time they could get in contact with me is when I was in jail. Um, At least they knew where you were. Right. And I was safe and I was alive. So um, I had a couple members of my family that really um, decided that they were going to go to the extra mile to save me. And um, they fought for me to go to Safe Harbor in Springfield because they're close to here, too, as well as it being faith-based. Um, this is a side of them. I didn't grow up in a faith-based environment, but um, this is the side of my family. It's my aunt and my cousins that did all this. They had, they had faith in their life. So they knew how important it was for them. And they'd seen it work for a lot of their um, people in their church. So they fought, they wanted to be close to me so they could be supportive. And they also wanted me to be in a faith-based program. Okay. And how has that been working this time around? Is the faith-based, is it AA or is it like, do they use the steps in there or like, what do yeah, you? Yeah, we, we do. We use the steps. I was actually in there for 16 months. So it's a holistic um, inpatient treatment. So I started... I started in there and we would go to IOP like most people in, a, in recovery go through. So you'd have to go yep. through that three times a week. Then we did trauma therapy. Um, we had to go to church every Sunday, which was a whole new thing for me. I'd never done that before. <laughs> and we had to go to um, five recovery meetings a week. So it'd be AA, NA, sometimes celebrate recovery or a faith-based recovery meeting. And it, that was... 16 months of retraining me to live um so when did you you must you got out of that what like last january been two years now yeah two years now yeah okay so now that we're coming into was that right before the holidays that you got out of that yeah i got out the first of december yeah okay that's perfect timing because you know these episodes are airing in december um, to raise awareness around relapse rates spiking up 33% from Thanksgiving to New Year's Eve. Yeah. Now, how do you feel? Because, like, I know what it's like in addiction. You know, we barely even know what fucking day it is. Sometimes somebody's like, you know what's your birthday, right? And I'm like, what? Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. You don't, you don't pay attention to that shit. You, they say we, you know, we live recovery one day at a time. I literally, I lived addiction one minute at a time, Absolutely. you know? Um, I was not concerned with JD's problems tomorrow. I was concerned with the right now. If I had four pills and I said to myself, I could really get fucking high off these four pills, or I can do two now and two tomorrow. I'm gonna do four I'm now. Do four. And, <laughs> and I'm gonna yeah. figure out figure it out tomorrow. Because right. I live this addiction one minute at a time. So, you know, nothing's really changed. We're impulsive people regardless. The The difference is I don't do drugs and I don't drink anymore. So how do you get through Thanksgiving and the Christmas and New Year's? Like, how is it with family, with friends, support right. system? Like, you know, what do you what is what are you doing for that for yourself? And I don't know how sustainable this is, but I mean, I have been able to find a career that does this. For me, it's all about reaching out and giving back. Um, God has really put a calling on my heart to reach women that are out on the streets the same way I was. 
So this year I'll be doing a Thanksgiving dinner for the women on Sullivan, as well as a Christmas celebration. So we have a drop-in center, my um, job in Columbus, and we'll be doing like gifts for the women. Like I've gotten to know some of these women and I don't care if they're high. I don't care if they just jumped out of a car with a guy. None of that matters to me. And so I get out of myself. Um, but dealing with like being with my family and stuff, it's become... I think my family has also been very like gracious to me. They, they gave me a lot of time before they'd even have a drink, like a glass of wine in front of me. And now none of my family have any kind of drinking problems. They, they drink half a beer and they're like, Woo. <laughs> weird. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> One of those weird people. Yeah. But, um, so I don't really get triggered at the family things anymore, but also like just, I, I have to qualify it with, I have a, very very firm program so i have firm boundaries i have very firm things that i do every day in my daily life to keep me spiritually fit and those help me in those moments um but yeah so, yeah I, I just get back a lot i stay out of myself okay so you get back a lot you and you still go to meetings how often do you go to meetings are you participating in meetings in your recovery yeah, um, well, it's kind of a weird situation because, I see, I work two jobs. They're both um, in recovery. So I work at the place that I was in treatment at two years ago. Um, I'm a phase coach and a um, shift lead there. So I got I take them to meetings pretty regularly. Um, so I, But I try not to share as much in those meetings where my residents are at because it's their time. So I've kind of come to a it's kind of a balancing game, but on my own, I would say I go to at least three meetings a week. Um, honestly, two of those are faith-based, but that's because that's what works for me. And then an AA meeting. Um, but yeah, I take them to whatever meetings they want to go to. That's cool. And I think that's important too, that you go, I remember being in rehab and like residential and they would take us out to meetings um, or sober living, they would take us to meetings and because we didn't have cars, obviously. Right. And the, the staff would go into the meetings, you know, majority of the staff members would go inside and catch a meeting. I would say there's only a couple that wouldn't ever go inside. They would be like making phone calls outside. But most of them went in and I never heard any of them share in those meetings while they were working. But. I have gone to meetings with them that, like, I saw them at mm -hmm. where they weren't working. It was just the meeting they were at, and I was at that meeting, too, on my own time while in sober living and just catching meetings with my friends that I met in the program. And I would see them at the meetings and hear them share and be like, oh, that's cool. Like, you know, like that's and I always thought it was interesting and I always respected it. Because we have these conversations. I don't need to hear, you know, I'll, I'll say Joe, um, because this guy Joe and I were really close. And he was my sober, he was my sober living manager, right? And um, he was about your age, like 40 years old, um, battled addiction to meth for 18, 19 years, in and out of jails, you know what I mean? And uh, lost his kids, that kind of stuff. And he was 18 months clean from meth when I met him, when I first got in recovery and he was that guy that had all the energy, took you to the gym and, you know, him and I got along really well. He always had really good wisdom too. Like, 
you know, talk to me about. Like there was one thing he always said to me that always stuck with me, and it was uh, that we have a choice today. You know, we have the choice to not drink or not use. However, as soon as we drink or use, we lose that choice. And that that was always so important to me to know that we have a choice to not do it. But as soon as I use it, that choice is gone and it's it's in charge now, not me. Right. Um, he all of a sudden stopped showing up to work. And it wasn't like Joe. Joe was early every day. He and he wasn't there for a couple of days and we were worried. And then we found out he was back in the residential. He, you know, relapsed for a night and then got back into treatment. Um, I saw him at the meeting that he wouldn't take us to. I would, he was always there at, you know, he was, I think he was a greeter. You know, he, he had one of the responsibilities. He was a door guy greeter. I forget. Um, but he was there and, uh, and I was, you know, two, three months sober at the time. And when it happened, I had talked to my sponsor and I talked to both of my therapists and I have a mentor in the program. Um, that's a woman that I'll never call a sponsor because I feel like we don't, shouldn't have that relationship. So I just call her a mentor. I talked to all four of them. I needed to know all their opinions and they all had the same exact opinion. And it was just because he lost his choice that night doesn't mean that anything he said to you was wrong. All his advice was still good advice that kept him sober that day. Mm-hmm. It's just that he didn't listen to his own advice the day that he relapsed. So you still can take his advice and take everything you learned from him and have it help you and benefit you in your sobriety. But just don't forget to remember this and all of the little things he taught you so that you don't relapse. Remember to talk to yourself. Remember to listen to yourself. Remember to check in with yourself. So use what he did as a lesson and mm. and I'm like oh okay so it was all basically about perspective and to look at it differently so you know I, I love Joe to death and he's I think he's got a couple of years now um because he went through it again but it happens how it happens and but the whole thing started again because I saw him in meetings randomly mm-hmm. um and luckily him and I are still friends to this day. You know, it's been three and a half years and we play words with friends. You know, that's our <laughs> friendship is to play words with friends with each other. And that's the kind of little shit like that, that appreciate that. I appreciate sobriety because that's somebody that I, he's one of the first people that I became friends with and met sober. And our friendship is purely based off of likes and dislikes and what we have in common and what we don't have in common and not, Hey, I used to get high with you. We're friends. Hey, I, I got you. I got you drugs or you got me drugs. So we're friends. Like, think about it. Like our, our friendships before, like, even, you know, you and Nicole, it's one of those things you're both sober now, but it's a lot different in a dynamic because you saw some shit and you lived a life together. And that kind of separation after is important because then you could easily fall back into old habits. Mm-hmm. Not to say that you two were looking to get back in. You, you could do the opposite and get together 
and build a brand new fucking catch program for the court systems to find girls and help girls. It, you know, it's the, it's the one dynamic or the other. Yeah. We're addicts. We don't do anything half-assed. No. You know, we, we full ass everything. So if we're going to be a drug addict, we're going to be a fucking drug addict. Yeah, we are. And if we're going to try and help people, we're going to dedicate every minute we have to try to help people. Yeah. You know, I'm fulfilling my addiction right now. I am at a meeting center 12 hours a day doing podcasts and talking to people in person or virtually all across the world every single day, all day, you know, Mm -hmm. and someone said to me like, Oh, like that's really great. And you're a great dude for doing all that and putting all this out. I'm like, it's I'm fucking selfish. Right. I'm doing it for me. (laughs) There's, there's motives behind everything. Yeah. Like I, I want to raise awareness. Yeah. I, but I need this for my sobriety too. Yeah. I need, I need to be talking to you. Like no one came to the 9am AA meeting this morning that I host. So I didn't I didn't talk to any alcoholics at 9 a.m. Like I enjoy talking. My, I enjoy starting my day with this kind of conversation. Yeah. You know, I don't like the fact that the conversation is as dark as it can be sometimes. This subject matter of our past. I don't like that that happened to you. I like the conversation of two alcoholics sitting down and relating to each other. So you don't have to feel so alone in your thoughts and your feelings. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. And I think I, I I love that part about my job, too. It keeps me constantly reminded of what I've crawled out of. Um, so, yeah, I can definitely relate to that. I, I try to be aware that a lot of the things, even though it's technically giving back that I do, are definitely for me. But it's because my recovery comes first in my life. So if I keep these actions in front of me all day, if I'm seeing women out there where I used to be all the time, if I am helping women in recovery work programming, I can remember myself when I felt that way. And I, it's easy to re- forget, like, because my life is so good now and I have so much joy and peace and serenity. It's easy for me to forget sometimes how it felt the other way. And I don't want to forget that. And I think that's a huge difference from what your program is today as opposed to what it was 15 years ago. Yeah. You know, when you were just white knuckle in it, you weren't helping anybody either. Mm-mm. You weren't out on the streets helping other girls. You were literally just trying to live a life as if that never happened. And now you are keeping your past on the forefront by revisiting, you know, that not the exact same places, but the same kind of settings. You know, oh no! Some of these places are the exact are the exact. Oh, are okay. Even better, yeah. Yeah, I live. I have. I have ministered to women on the streets in the same corners that I stood on several years ago. Any of them you know from several years ago? Yeah, yeah. There's um one. There's a couple women that are still out there. I don't know how it happened because I know the statistics aren't at, aren't in our favor, but somehow more than average of the women that I ran with are in recovery now. Um, hmm. I've got at least six women that I know of in recovery, and I only know two out there right now that are still using. So That's I don't pretty know. Good. Those are pretty good numbers. And, yeah. and and you know what it is, though, too? It's it's also the law of attraction. It's, 
it's you know the power of what, what one person can do in in numbers and in groups. So one person out of that six got clean and then helped another girl and then helped another yeah. girl and then all of a sudden there's four in that other fifth girl and the sixth girl. They're like, holy shit, this is gonna be not easy, but look at them, they're all doing it. And then they get confidence going into the sobriety of I can do this, I can I can escape this because they did. They were me, and look at them now. I can do this too. And I think that that happens a lot with the groups. If you're in a group and you kind of travel in a pack in a group, that where if one can kind of break through and break the mold and kind of show the rest how to do it, every not all at once, then somebody else will trickle off. Somebody else will trickle off and then be like, yeah. and next thing you know, there's six of you, you know, and like you said, there's two more out there, but still, that's. Hopefully sometime, you know, soon they'll have their epiphany, their, you know, their moment, their moment of clarity. That's that's what we'll call it. Their moment of clarity where they go. All I can do is plant seeds. I just call it planting seeds because I've seen a couple of the women that I knew when I was using out there. And um, unfortunately, well, I don't know if it's unfortunate or fortunately, very, very rarely do I actually get recognized because of how different I look. Yeah. On top of the fact that they're under the um, influence of different drugs, even women, I, there was one woman that I saw that I know I spent good two years running side by side with, laying in trap houses with, getting high with, that saw me and never even recognized who I was. And I just, I kept it that way because um, I'm just going to plant seeds that if I can do it, anybody, if I can get sober, anybody in this universe can, because I was the bottom of the bottom barrel, like, some people have bottoms that are, like, here, mine was, like, uh, about 200 feet below that, my bottom was real low, okay, so if I can recover, anybody can. Yeah, and, and two, okay, so I have a theory that all of our bottoms are the same, and I think that a lot of us have different thresholds for pain. Mm-hmm. We have different thresholds of what we can withstand inside of our addiction to continue going, um, to be able to hit another bottom, right? Mm-hmm. Because ultimately, our bottom, in my opinion, is when we surrender to a program. Mm-hmm. Like, you did not hit your bottom, in my opinion. At all when you got sober the first time because right. you didn't do a program. You weren't broken enough yet. You never tried to claw your way back up yet. You were still halfway down the well when you relapsed again to continue going through that. So that's why it didn't hurt as much. You were still in the well. Yeah. You know? yeah. Because the bottom, literally, by definition, there's no, it's there. Yeah. So. All you can do from there is start to climb up and out and start making our ascension out of being the bottom of this fucking pit that addiction is. So, you know, I think that we all have the same bottom, but we all have different speed bumps and different things that we can endure to be like, ah, no, fuck it. I'm going to keep going. There's some girls, there's some girls that be like, I'm never going to do traffic and I can't do it. I don't like sex. I don't like dicks. I don't like whatever. And I can't do it. So I got to get sober because I'm not going to fuck. And then mm-hmm. boom, they get sober. And then there's other girls who are like, no, I can do it. You know? <laughs> yeah. And there's even guys that are like, no, I can throw on a dress and I can do it. I can cross dress and do it. I can be a guy and do it. No, I can do it. So like, 
you know, it's not even a matter of male or female because there's plenty of males that are also doing sex work. Um, just some differently than others. Yeah. <laughs> um, but either way, you know, I'm just glad that you are doing it differently this time. You're not trying to white knuckle it again. You go to meetings, you participate in your recovery. And even it's important that you're giving back during the holidays. You're doing a Thanksgiving for the girls. Like you're remembering where you came from this time. You're not pretending. Like I said before, it was, I'm Molly and I was never an addict. And here I am sober. I'm straight. I'm just straight edge. And then this time you're like, no, I was you four years ago. You can have a day like this. You can help people. That's so huge and so, so vital to the community and what you're doing. So thank you. Thank you. I'm not in your community to thank you for the community. And I can already just assume you don't get thanked a lot for what you do. Um, We do thankless work. You know, we do work where you get thanked by by the person that you're not even helping. You know, we get thanks from people who are like saying, thank you for what you do for the community. I'm not a drug addict. I'm not alcoholic, but you're really vital for what what this community needs. Mm -hmm. But you'll never see them at a meeting, you know, because they're sober. They just appreciate you doing the work so they don't have to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. Definitely. So it's so funny. You know, I get thanks here and there from addicts and, you know, sponsees that are grateful. But, you know, the thanks that I normally hear from people that don't ever need my services, don't ever want my services, they just appreciate yeah. it being here. It's just weird how it works. But I appreciate what you're doing out there so much. Like, it's a fucking amazing that you're just showing up back into you. It's so hard to show up to your old stomping grounds. And and it's not even, like, stomping grounds where you just got high at. It's stomping grounds where, like, it's a lot of PTSD, I'm sure. But oh, yeah. when you face it, 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 it has to make it easier, right? Facing mm-hmm. it. Yeah, it's made it a lot easier. The first time that I went out to where I'd been before, it was terrifying. But, I mean, and I'd be downplaying it if I didn't mention that, you know, my higher power, which I choose to call God, really showed me that that's what he called me to do. Um, It's not for everybody, but I found peace in that moment where other people might not find it. So it's not necessarily for everybody, but something about the way I'm wired, that is what I needed to heal was to go into that same place and see it for what it was, just the corner on the street. It wasn't this nightmare that I had built it in my mind. Um, And to see the woman struggling in the same corner, you know, I don't feel as alone. Even though I'm out of it now, I'm not so terrible of a person that it only happened to me. It can happen to anybody. And it does happen to anybody. You know, we see that. So... Thank you so much for sitting down and opening up and talking about that. I know it's not easy talking about a lot of that stuff. Um, It's not supposed to be easy, you know. But the important thing is, is that you are accepting of it. If you didn't accept that it happened, you wouldn't talk about it so candidly. Right. And that acceptance is why you're sober. You know, Mm -hmm. it's one of the many reasons you're sober. But having gaining acceptance of our past... Holy shit. When you can gain acceptance over anything, 
talk no wonder why it's the last phase in depression you know what i mean when like denial and all that shit like when you have acceptance and you can gain acceptance and like a grieving process or anything Mm -hmm. oh god weight off your shoulders is just like not even describable right you know i love words and talking and i can't even describe the feeling of what acceptance is when it really lifts off my shoulders so thank you again and you're awesome awesome, and i'm so glad that you're doing what you're doing like that's so fucking cool (laughs) thank you